fun. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, yeah, it is the 8th, 16th of May. Tammy, sorry, it's a little bit early here because we are, Tammy is on a trip. Tammy, where yeah, are you right now? Sorry I keep traveling. Um, I'm in Prague. Oh my God. On sort of what's the vacation, but kind of working as yeah. usual. But thank you guys for recording early. It's really good to see you. Um, it's really beautiful here. It's yeah. my first time in Eastern Europe. What's Prague like? Prague is cool. It's very touristic, which can be annoying. But if you go right. to you know quieter places, it's interesting. And you get this whole gloss on the post-communist economy yeah. and the way that they remember the Holocaust. So it's, you know, it's very European in that sense. Did you go to the Holocaust Museum on vacation? I went to all the Jewish stuff <laughs> today. It was very depressing, but kind of amazing. Yeah. And I um, would... Yeah. I, I would rather. I, I, it sounds like the tourist stuff might be, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, the stuff you just described. Like, <laughs> oh, you can figure out the ways in which the post-communist economy worked. That's like, I don't know. Is there, is there a place where I can have like a type of food that's like only served in Prague? <laughs> like, what's their what's their version of like you know like the taco that you get in like uh, San Diego, you know, or the or the I don't know the sourdough like you get pork in knuckle yeah Ch chipino that you get i don't even know how to pronounce that what's that thing? it's disgusting chipino, yeah yeah have you the had it i like chipino you don't oh like my chipino? god it's gross yeah it's like ketchup and like have you had it andy it's like san francisco's official i haven't meal. i actually haven't had it in san francisco Wait, is it, i make it is it meat it's like no. fish it's fish stew oh that that's a uh... kind way to put it <laughs> It's basically like ketchup. If you imagine, all right, Andy. <laughs> okay, that's disgusting. I only... imagine this. You take like a blend of seafoods, right? Like so, like a piece yeah. of like tilapia and um, yeah. some clams. I feel like I've seafood to make a soup right. out of it. You and you it. just yeah. squirt half a bottle of ketchup okay, on it. Okay, that is nasty. And then you dump some water on the ketchup and put it in the microwave. That's basically what you're doing. It's disgusting. That is disgusting. <laughs> it's disgusting. I haven't had it in San Francisco. I, I make it. It's good. It's, a, it's a delicacy, a SF delicacy. It's a, it's San Francisco's like most outside of sourdough bread yeah, and I rice aroni. Mm. Yeah. I guess rice aroni yeah. is the San Francisco treat. But. Um, I think yeah. So the three things in San Francisco are sourdough bread, chipino, and rice roni. Yeah. yeah, I like oh, and Dutch crunch wow. in the bay. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah, Dutch crunch. Wait, what's so that? we're over three here. So I mean, sourdough can be good. <laughs> <laughs> but like compared to Los Angeles, where it seems like you know everything is good, I was just down there last week, LA. and even just looking on like DoorDash or something, you're just like, oh yeah, you know, Jajangmyeon like, <laughs> here. I can order like pulsam. I can order really good Thai food. And here in the East Bay, it's like I can order sweet green. Oh, God. Or, or I can order <laughs> basically like there's like all these fake Paneras that are worse than Panera. <laughs> it's just like I, so I would prefer the real Panera. Please yeah. Oh, there's so much good food in the East Bay. No, there really Not is. Not for yeah. delivery. I thought there was good, good Indian Southeast food. Asian, yeah. There's good Indian food, the bread in, is um, extraordinary. but it's like 40 minutes south right. of here. Okay. Um, down like near the peninsula, it's pretty good. And San Jose is great, but San Jose is far, you know, so yeah. um, San Jose has good everything, Korean food, Vietnamese food, Chinese food. But the the news in Philly, you know, Xi'an famous foods in New York City. Mm -hmm. they, uh -huh. they, they announced they were coming to Philly, so we're oh, really? celebrating That's it. exciting. But then, <laughs> but then it turned out to be like some unfunny April Fool's joke. 
Like it's not real. It's so specific. Joke. What do you mean? No, they said on April Fools, and they said, "No, we're kidding. We're not." Yeah, but why is that a joke? It's not. That's cruel. That's not funny. It's just mean to all the Asians in Philly. Okay, Tammy, back up a little bit. Oh, the one. Well, I'm just using this. Oh, you're using something. The one thing about um, Xi'an Fine Foods, though, is they use so much styrofoam and plastic. It's like impossible to go there if you're. That's true. Oh, I cut. That's true. But it's really delicious. Oh wait! Don't turn it down that way. You're too low now. I turned it down. Anyway. Yeah, in Prague, it's very hard to eat as a vegetarian. Oh, that's that's the one thing I'll say. Really? Like, I've what been having great beer, and but I keep ordering like a side salad or like uh, a side of potatoes. Yeah, that sounds horrible. Because everything's like pork knuckles and sausages, and you really? know. But I've I'm I'm looking, but there's so with the Vietnamese population I'm trying to learn about here. So they're the third largest oh. minority group. So the Vietnamese food here is really good. Interesting. Oh, really? So that's okay. Yeah. Well, that's so the Vietnamese food isn't very veg, is it? Well, I, like, I'm eating some seafood, so then it's okay. okay. Yeah, like, fair. you know, so I can eat, like, whatever, like, shrimp and stuff in the yeah. in spoon. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I think I'm going to go to the Vietnam town tomorrow. There's a little Hanoi south of the city. What is, yeah, what is that link between the two? Yeah, it's really – so, obviously, under communism, there were a lot of Vietnamese students who came here. But then oh. post-communism, too, there seems to have been a super high growth rate in the Vietnamese population. I think it has to do with, like, trade treaties okay and some immigration liberalization and so yeah. anyway there's like eighty thousand vietnamese people in the czech republic wow yeah it's it's cool it feels like a multicultural Eighty thousand people czech that's a lot vietnamese people in the czech republic yeah the renowned vietnamese, vietnamese food czech is Republic. the best food it's really one of the great foods like no i mean it's so i think it's really the, i thought i give a lot of thought to <laughs> ranking ethnic foods you know you like all the you spices think it is the number one best food in the world Oh, yeah. Well, I would say that <laughs> when I went to Vietnam, that's the best food I've ever had in my life. I've never been to Vietnam. I really Oh, man. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, you know, it's I crazy because it's like in some, we'll talk about this is a good segue to our, our thing. But, you know, because of, uh, because of communism, they have like really good <laughs> produce um, markets. Okay. Why? Why does communism mean good yeah. produce markets? There's a lot of good produce in capitalist countries, too, but no, not I'm, the. Yeah, it's often really bad in there. communism. No, I, I agree, but I'm just saying that I attributed it to communism, <laughs> and now that you ask, I didn't expect you to ask. <laughs> now that you have, I don't know why. But here's the thing: there are these amazing public markets in Vietnam, right? right? right. And you can get yeah, all markets, there's right. the produce there is ridiculous, and right. so like let's say that you go somewhere <laughs> and you go to. You get like Bonsao, which is like, a, you know, that sort of egg crepe that mm-hmm. have you had that like so this egg good. crepe with shrimp and they put like a uh, mung bean sprouts in it. Anyway, so you get Bonsao in, in uh, Ho Chi Minh City mm-hmm. and they give you like a foot piled high of different herbs. vegetables mm. and herbs and shit. I know. And it's so good. And so it's the abundance of fresh right. stuff they give I you that makes everything that. good. And so then, and then you can, you learn to sort of, I was there for a long time. Like, I think like we were there for like six weeks or something, oh, wow. uh, Casey and I, That's and so nice. you learn all these different places and their specialties. So I went to this place that made like tamarind fish soup. Mm-hmm. It's like the best thing I've ever eaten. Oh God, and so like, so uh, I don't know. I think it's the best food. No wonder you like hate the... Chipino. You're like, 
compared yeah, to Jafina the fish is the opposite. Vietnam. Jafina is the opposite. Vietnam. Yeah, you're like actual like spices. Canned, you, like well, the tamarind soup is like light and you can taste the fish yeah, and they right, have all yeah, sorts yeah. of interest. They I mean, had all these like. so not a fair comparison, obviously. <laughs> they have all these vegetables that I didn't even know existed. Like, you know, the, those long sponge things. Do you know what I'm talking about? They sell I them sometimes like at like uh, Vietnamese so markets. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. Yeah. But, so, um, silk melon kind of yeah, yeah yeah and um and you know compared to chipino which is basically yeah, yeah. like it just tastes like fucking ketchup <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible i agree asian food is better than the chip- chipino <laughs> ketchup is technically asian but <laughs> ketchup is not asian this is like but i really have uh it's not really, actually i've started to resist the like sort of, kind of. soft soft imperialism of chinese people claiming everything at this point you know? the word no, ketchup you know, comes from chinese not only did we Heinz invent, is obviously it's we thing. not only invented pasta <laughs> but we also invented chinese. ketchup and tomato sauce <laughs> kimchi did, that's they us a lot of stuff to be fair <laughs> oh they definitely did yeah um yeah, yeah ketchup is a fish sauce and then it Wait, became what is, oh, really? tomato and tomato and sugar vinegar thing that heinz came mm. up with it's totally different um you know, it was like right. a fish sauce from Southeast Asia. Right, what are we talking about here yeah. today? Okay. Our first topic on our show, Annie, I didn't mean to cut you off no, here, fine. but, you know, there's too much nationalism <laughs> for my taste. The uh, Our first topic today is about baby formula. Now, if you don't know that there's been this big baby formula shortage, I didn't actually know about it either until people started writing about it. And I thought that um, the numbers are really eye-popping, and it's something that I think is indicative of a lot of stuff that we talk about on the show. But, you know, this is according to Derek Thompson's article in The Atlantic. Um, The Atlantic has been covering this really well. I don't know why I'm surprised about that. The Atlantic at this point kind of covers everything pretty well. Like, uh, don't make that (laughs) thing. I think that their coverage of this has been good. I'll put it this way. Um, They they said that 40% of formula is out of stock nationwide, right? Like, that's big deal, obviously, for something that, people need right like this is not an optional thing for a lot of families right like it's something that if the baby doesn't latch or if there's some sort of issue or if the baby is adopted for example like uh, breastfeeding is not an option and you know i it seemed like over the past 20 years or 15 years or so that we've gotten a pretty healthy point in this right like where there is still sort of shaming about all this stuff and whatever but like baby formula had been pretty normalized in a way and so that makes this like even more catastrophic because a lot of people are dependent on it and so in states i think in the south right like there are states where like basically everything is sold out at this point and And the the question that it's kind of spread out it looks like right right the question that um i think people are asking at this point is like a how did this happen right and then b like what does it really say about trade and the way in which we the government signs contracts because the way that this happens is that there aren't it's not like the baby formula market is wide open right like basically what happens is that a state signs an exclusive contract with a baby formula manufacturer and those are the only companies that end up making it right like they're well, the those only are, ones that can that's really for WIC, right what's WIC? so the the yeah. National Industrial Policy Park comes in under WIC, which is right, the poverty right. program for women and children. Right, okay, and they right. are they buy over half of the formula in the United States. So some of the critiques that we're seeing around the national policy are basically that the the contracting 
obligations under WIC nationally are that the yeah, federal right. government essentially, you know, determines what they're doing. But right. yeah, I mean, we should talk about that because I think like there are libertarians basically saying that this looks too much like socialism and it's not working. But I think like socialists would actually be like, this actually looks like deregulated neoliberalism under a, the shell of the sort of public sector. So right. they should say, have you seen the produce in Vietnam? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Have you been to a market outside of this country? <laughs> That's all communism, baby. Yeah. Um, I would, uh, yeah, Tammy, to your point, I think the thing that we should talk about and Annie chime in here about this, because I think this is a lot of what you think about, right? Which is like the fight is between whether or not this has happened, as Tammy said, because uh, there's, we should have a big open free market where everybody can produce baby food and we import it and we can do all sorts of other supply options, right? Um, and though the people who are arguing that, like my friend Jim Surowicki, right? Like who, people who are very open markets. Um, right. People are basically saying like, you know, like these government contracts are bad. We should have real competition. And the reason why this isn't happening is because we don't have real competition. We just have basically the government choosing five people Ironically enough, one of the big people around this is Abbott, right? Mm -hmm. Which is also sort of, you know, people that's when the government sent out tests, like, uh, oh, I never Abbott made that connection. Too. It's the same company. Right. Okay. I think yeah. it's the same company. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a, I think it's a fair question, right? Like, would yeah. we be having this shortage if there were more options? Um, and, uh, would we be having this issue if like one failure and in this case, it, the failure was that out factory some of this stuff got tainted and two kids died right right and so there had to be this massive recall and that's what is helping slow all this down mm -hmm. like right yeah, now, there are like 40 different providers <laughs> and would this be happening okay andy yeah. andy lou your thoughts <laughs> i i was reading a libertarian <laughs> yeah, and i, I was like i was like what am i like what am i doing but so but one post that i thought put it well and it might be you know as tammy's saying a libertarian taking this one case and twisting it to their own ideology was was but was kind of pointing out that um, was using this case to argue that this is kind of the problem with um, these efforts, kind of a Trumpian efforts to to MAGA, right, to make America great again by uh, using tariffs and regulations to exclude products from other countries. The particular examples are thinking of as for formula from Canada right. or Western Europe where their mm -hmm. own versions of the FDA are probably even higher standards than the U.S., but the U.S. FDA pre precludes them from coming into the U.S. Um, so like, well, you know, the, these nationalist policies are preventing easy solutions because uh, there's like plenty of formula in Europe, right? But they just can't be sold in the U.S. unless the FDA allows them. To, I guess it's like it's just like COVID tests all over again, right? Um, so here i'll read i'll read a quote from one of these posts from a cato institute person but i thought it was kind of interesting <laughs> right he says yeah. um trendy economic nationalist policies proposed to make america more resilient tariffs localization mandates government contracts can actually make us weaker by discouraging global capacity supplier diversity and system-wide flexibility reshoring nationalizing supply chains might insulate us from external supply and demand shocks but it can also amplify domestic shocks. <laughs> Infant formula, with its protectionism, regulations, and heavy dose of government direction, is pretty much the poster child for what nationalist, quote-unquote, industrial policy advocates today propose for all sorts of, quote-unquote, strategic industries. And, well, here we are. Lessons abound. And it's interesting because, you know, with when when COVID, 
was kind of messing everything up the last, especially, you know, 2020, 2021. Um, a lot of people, and I, I wrote about this a little bit, were saying that, you know, we've created this globalization network that is fine when everything is running smoothly, but it's also less quote unquote resilient. If everything is made in China or if all semiconductor chips are mm-hmm. made in Taiwan, right? Yeah. You, the analogy I came up with was like, it's like, like, like an old fashioned Christmas light thing where like if one stopped, the whole thing stopped working. Whereas like new Christmas yeah. lights, if one stops, the other, the others still work, right? Um, but we've kind of created this global network that's kind of like old-fashioned Christmas lights. When 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 one is removed and it messes everything up, well, one solution to that would be stop being so dependent on the rest of the world and make everything at home. But then, I guess like the obverse of that is well, when things at home don't work, right? Then potentially right. you've created another kind of lack of resiliency or you know dependency. And um, I don't know. It's it's interesting to say that. I didn't think about this, right? But that the the problems, the so-called problems with over overly being overly dependent on global trade, could also manifest itself in being overly overly dependent on national uh, production. But I don't know. Maybe this is just like a Cato Institute person just taking their shots because because <laughs> they want free trade and no taxes and no tariffs. Right. But I th- like I think it's okay to take them seriously yeah. because right, like we do have a problem that was right now that is a severe problem. And um, this is like their moment. So you know? <laughs> they've like they've never like in my mind, like oh, the sort wow. of like staunch, super open market, like, you know, get rid of all regulations. Libertarian has never been like this is like this is like their moment to shine. You right, know? Exactly. Like, they're never going to get a more sympathetic audience. <laughs> I think at this moment when like mothers are struggling or rationing baby formula right so yeah it's um, interesting that seriously because they're conservatives like these libertarians are conservatives but they're really not happy with the trumpian maga kind of thing right they're saying they're saying yeah. like because they're against protectionism they're, they're against right. they're also but or they're even also, fake protectionism because trump's you know anyway right yeah and these these yeah. this style of uh libertarian also wants open borders i imagine too right. so they're probably not that happy and they're not a fan of biden industrial like policy either right, so right. they're not a fan they're not of they're not like about maga in, in really any way right um right cato's people can about, be very anti-immigrant right they you think they so, do they can be yeah like the only generally this stuff that I read at Cato is around foreign policy because they're anti-interventionists and kind of restrainers, but their domestic policy can be extremely xenophobic. So just want to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes oh. sense. Anyway. But, um, oh, that's universal. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking <laughs> I mean, about, I was talking about like sort of, you know, like way, way libertarian galaxy brain libertarians, right? Like they're all like, and then we shouldn't have, we should have open borders too. I mean, this is the, one billion Americans argument in a way, right? Even mm. though I don't think Matty Glaces is a libertarian in any way, but you know, yeah. that's, that's like a, like somebody like Barry Weiss is like an open borders libertarian. Is she really? really? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's why she did the tweet immigrants. They get the job. Oh, right. <laughs> she likes the kind that clean her yard and her house. <laughs> no, the ones that land a triple axle, yeah. Tammy. Oh, <laughs> my bad, my bad. <laughs> Immigrants get oh a job done. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, see. I don't know. Did you? There, there was like this argument. There was this piece that that was in her Substack that I read, and it was about this data scientist at Thomson Reuters who said he got fired because he uh, did. Um, he like made this argument that white people are shot more. You know, like that black people aren't shot as much as white people or whatever, right? Like that all okay. all this stuff is a lie. 
and then I read it, and then I was like, wait, but the like it's not even like the sort of presumption of making that argument. I like I don't think people should be fired for making that argument, you know? Yeah. But I was like, the way in which he went about reaching this conclusion was crazy, you know? Like it was all predicated on this idea that like we need to adjust for when officers feel in fear, right? Wow. And like I was like, wow. wait, that's a whole problem, right. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, like so, like you basically said, okay, let's let's pretend that every single thing that every police officer says about every shooting is correct, right? You know, and then let's adjust for that, and then it's just like, okay, like what are we talking about here? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he still should have been fired, but like, who cares, right? Um. All right. So, uh, Tammy, what do you think about this? Like, you know, like what, what do you think about this question of, you know, like what should what should be done about this at this point? Right. We have this system. Like you said, it's a lot of it is mediated through WIC. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that there are these exclusive contracts. I think that in Derek's piece that he mentioned that a company that gets one of these contracts has like 300 percent more business and profits than the companies that don't, which basically means that the other companies go out of business. Right. And so. You have all of baby formula being controlled by government contracts and that, you know, that does introduce like large points of failure that can lead to these types of things. Like, what, what do you think should be done about this? I mean, OK, so the one thing that I have been trying to catch up just learning the history about, and so I have obviously a lot of holes, is that so WIC was was started in the early 70s. And it wasn't until 1989 that a law was passed requiring the states to do this sort of competitive bidding contracting because they were right. worried about inflated costs, but that has led to this like incredible dependence and, you know, weird privatization, right, of that program. And so I guess the Cato analysis to me, the I guess a question I have is, um, it, it doesn't necessarily seem the case to me that the, the kind of like national stockpiling or sort of national industrial policy thing that we would want in, in right. certain strategic sectors has right. to look like this. It just happens to look like this because of what was going on in 1989. And that was also a time when they were trying to discourage formula use and promote breastfeeding. Some promotion of breastfeeding is probably fine, but it also, as Jay was saying, can involve a lot of shaming and a lot of like violation of people's choices. Anyway, so there was like a whole environment around this competitive Wait, bidding yeah, can process. You, can you say more about that? How, okay. With the breastfeeding? Yeah. Yeah. Breastfeeding? Why was this, why oh, that's was, a real thing. No, 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 for sure it is. Oh. Uh, actually, I was just looking this why up. Why did the 89 thing happen? But how do these policies shaped by stigma around formula, I guess. Well, question. I was just, I was remarking that. So in 89, when they reauthorized WIC and instituted this competitive bidding state-based process, mm -hmm. they also um, made more strict, like the income requirements for certain poverty programs. Like it was a time when they were trying to crack down on poverty programs generally. Mm -hmm. And at that same time, there was a federal promote um, discouragement of like children out of wedlock, right? This is part of like the, that kind of wealth, sure. that crackdown right. on welfare moment. And part of that also is to discourage formula use really? and to promote best rating. Wow. So I'm just like in my, that's just like a kind of like historical yeah, observations yeah, yeah. that I'm trying to like understand better, but it seems yeah. fishy or it seems interesting that that's kind of like all happening as a piece. So I guess I, my question is like, I can also imagine a different scenario in which we don't have competitive bidding that actually doesn't really feel competitive because it's just a few companies whose like partial monopoly status hasn't really been regulated. You can also imagine a situation in which America might have its own like federally federal production of you know formula. Like there are other right. ways to do this right. that don't you know succumb to the the vulnerabilities that these libertarians are pointing out. Right, and Amanda Mall and the you know in the Atlantic again. Um, wrote this piece that I thought was pretty 
good. And it was about basically making the argument that like, uh, if we really care about infant nutrition and if we really care about sort of care, right, then we have this much larger problem that also feeds into the formula problem, which is that mothers don't get any type of family leave at this, you know, that totally. it's reduced. Yeah. And so yeah. from that piece, she writes, in 2021, less than a quarter of U.S. workers had any access to paid family leave through their employer. Wow. That's so fucking low. Yeah. Did you know that? I didn't know it was that low. No. We're the only country that doesn't have any. Yeah. Relatively few employers offer other kinds of support for lactating mothers. The shock of having to go back to work six weeks after delivering a new baby is terribly disruptive to breastfeeding access. Stephen Abrams, a professor of pediatrics at the University of Texas Dell Medical School, told me. Yeah. The results of these... Policies show up in predictable ways in statistics about infant nutrition. The babies of richer families are more likely to be breastfed exclusively, and they're breastfed for longer on average, right? And so Amanda does this really good job, I think, in the way that she is good at doing and sort of reframing this, right? Basically saying, like, well, why are we so dependent on breast, on baby formula, period, right? Um, Why is it that, that, you know, why is nutrition and formula being seen as like an individual choice issue when it really does seem like it's like right. a, it's like an employment issue, right? right. It's a work issue. Um, and that, 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 that idea that like, uh, you know, if you have six weeks off, then you don't have time. Like it's difficult. <laughs> I like, I don't, I obviously don't have any experience with this, but I do remember my wife going through it. It's like, it's hard to pump, you know, yeah. it's hard to find time to do it in advice. Like the pumping closet was like literally a closet. Oh <laughs> you know? like, supposed like, to yeah. be have like that's against regulation because they're supposed to be a sink, well, whatever, well, whatever. Obviously, yeah. um, I mean, I, th- I appreciated Amanda's analysis. I, I I would just say that I do think also women, some women yeah. do choose, and also yeah. some women for a variety of reasons actually can't breastfeed, and so yeah. right, right, so, for sure, yeah. for sure. You know, but but yes, I totally agree yeah. that. So I have this, a, these choices are like very mediated. Yeah, right. I I have a quick recommendation. I read this book after we had our kid because I was also feeding. trying to figure this out. It's called yeah, it's called Lactivism. <laughs> okay. uh, very okay. catchy title, but it's 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 kind of this like history plus class <laughs> class class analysis, right? Of this stuff, but and I was okay. I went back and like asked my parents, and like I'm pretty sure all three of us were probably fed formula because in the 70s and 80s that era, right? The thinking was better living through science. Formula is better than milk, and then we've had the pendulum swing backwards now where kind of more hippy dippy types and wealthier types (laughs) really believe in um, milk is better. And based on my memory of like four years ago, after all this research, I think the conclusion was like milk, the, the main thing that milk provides over formula is like the antibodies of the mother directly, you know, like in the, in the short term. But in the long run, like there isn't a lot of scientific backing that says milk mm-hmm. or formula or all that better or worse. And a lot of the stuff really is about like your beliefs and your networks that you're in and all that stuff. And so I, I'm sort of like, I'm a little skeptical of the like, what's like, you know, breast milk is much better because it's like more natural. Like, I think, I don't know, maybe it's because I was well, raised on formula. But. Yeah, you turned out fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I don't have a, a, yeah, a so deeper connection to my, know, to my Andy's parents. Andy's very you know. tall for an Asian. You know? so yeah. He's like, Andy's the he's poster like child six. for Abbott Industries. I think it was the cow's milk. I think it was Part like, of it is his hair because his hair adds three inches. But he, he's like 6'1 or something. I, I think, think it's so. the yeah the malnutrition of my parents' generation. 
I know. We always, I, I was just raised on Korean breast milk. And I like, oh, <laughs> to look like so you, so you know your, your like mom a, didn't use formula. I look like a peasant farmer. <laughs> <laughs> I was also breastfed, and I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, Tammy yeah. looks like a peasant farmer, too. <laughs> no, Tammy. Yeah. Yeah. Rice farming. Rice farming, farming stock. Yeah. Tammy and I bury kimchi <laughs> in our backyard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if we were raised on good American formula, we'd be like, you know, we'd be much taller. Yeah, we'd be like Andy living in a glass tower. I'm <laughs> <and> tall. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that, her, yeah. not to say that, you know, this is not, I, I don't think this is what you're saying. But yeah. I think her point is, is not that breast milk is better. I think right. it's just saying like, if we are going to assume, exactly. why don't people right. breastfeed? Here is right. the answer, right? Like, right. there is the reason for that. Yeah, and, and you can go both ways on this in terms of like, on the one hand, like formula is liberating, allows women to get back to work quicker and li- li- have mm-hmm. careers and blah, blah blah. On the other hand, you're also saying like, we live in a society without a welfare state that doesn't support you know parents and women specifically trying to raise their children, and totally. they should be given this kind of buffer zone between work and raising their families. So, you know, it cuts both ways and you can make arguments both ways in terms of um, formula versus milk and like what's more quote unquote feminist, you know, versus another. So, right. I don't know. Yeah. Right. yeah. It does I, seem weird that we don't allow all of these European products to come in. They're definitely better than ours. Except for, <laughs> I don't know. They're definitely know, like, like made in the Swiss Alps and internalized racism and i would take east asian i get like over American I, I always too. get the tinge of i always feel like you know like like actual like not i don't think it's racist but i do think this is a place where the term racially tinge is correct you know when, when people start talking about like oh well you know like that's how they do it in sweden i'm always like i was like what you know like why why is that like the 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 like uh end all be all like bernie talking about the like wooden toys and shit that they sell (laughs) that are really expensive and they're like this came from sweden i'm just like yeah i'm over that nobody wants to play with this fucking wooden i mean the chinese breast like formula thing was obviously very (laughs) bad for this there's like a korean formula (laughs) that my friends would like like import from korea like they they store it by like i would assume like the korean the rich asian countries that would get a formula it's like the china Mm. one that that was a huge scandal in the 2000s yeah that was bad I mean, if anybody the... wants them from the Czech Republic, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, see, know. that's not the right. It needs to be Scandinavia. It's for the wrong era. Stuff. I know. Right? Yeah. There's like this baby uh, seat, car seat called mm-hmm. the Klek. Do you know about this? I saw that. Klek, K-L-E-K. Mm-mm. It's a designer okay. thing? Yeah. Sounds like Ikea, like, yeah. Okay, so the Klek is really expensive. Oh, dear. Baby seat, right? And... All the rich white parents have the Kleck, uh-huh. and like Gosh. the names, it, it's kind of like the, the one that's really popular is called the Kleck Foomf, right? <laughs> I only know because I had one, right? <laughs> and here's the thing: it's like you make this very expensive baby seat, and the material, the fabric doesn't come off, and so if your baby pukes oh, in wow. the baby seat, which is going to happen, that's bad. You have to throw the shit away, which is what we How had does to do. It not come off. That's so because bad. apparently these genius. Scandinavians who understand everything about babies don't understand how to make like a detachable fabric on the baby. That's seat. crazy. Anyway, it made me very skeptical about this, <laughs> you know, racially tinged approach to baby products. 
<laughs> it's like, fuck this click. Now, the nice thing about the click is that it's narrower, right? So uh -huh. like American baby seats are super wide. Right. And so if you have a smaller car having the click, or if you have to stack them three by three, like right. that's a big, if you have like three young kids and you need to stack them yeah. in the back seat of like, a, let's stack say like Volkswagen <laughs> Golf, right? The only way that you can fit three in the back is like through the click. That's right? crazy. But then you've spent $950 oh on Lord. these fucking on these so baby dumb. seats that you have to toss if the kid throws up in them. American right? strollers are just so big. I remember That's going to so Japan bad. and just paying attention for the first time to the strollers they use in Japan. They look like little Mario Karts. Like the kids are huge and they just Aww. have like wheels underneath That's them. Yeah, so That's cute. all you need. Yeah, it was great. Like, I think you, I don't yeah. understand this that culture either. It's like, you know, like that's another thing that you know my parents sent me. You mean Japan? Childhood. Huh? No, like there was oh. a American there's two companies for strollers. The first is Up a Baby. Yeah. The Up a Baby Vista is like the so like SUVs. Yeah, there it's gigantic. Yeah. And uh, if you walk around Brooklyn, Tammy, which you do, especially in your neighborhood, yes, you will see so many up. Just look at I the brand. I have seen those. Yeah. Right. Up a yeah. baby. They take Vista. up the whole it, sidewalk. It's it really irritating. It's gigantic. Um, <laughs> anyway, we just didn't have one. everyone at this point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. No more sensitive words, demographic than parents. <laughs> <laughs> but so we, uh, I will say that we had not the Alpha Baby, we had something similar. You know, it was also from Scandinavia. It's called, mm -hmm. you know, and it was gigantic. And the second that our kid turned like one, we just put her in one of those like collapsing folding strollers. Yeah, exactly. so much better. Totally. So much easier. You can carry so it around. So is the worry that up until when they'll die if you have them in that in the cheapy folding one? I have no idea what I like. Okay. I actually don't understand what it is. The cheap like, ones, yeah. I would say they're kind of light. And if you're on like cobblestone, they suck, you know, for for like they're they're really light and bump. And so, like, like your bumpy. baby could pop out. No, no it just sucks no, to push no. it out. Oh, I mean, but it's like cobblestone. Or like yeah. anything bumpy. Philadelphia problem. Philadelphia. Oh, that's Street right. That great. is a Philadelphia yeah. problem. <laughs> so it's not the smooth ride on the Philly cobblestone, right? Like when you go see the Liberty Bell or like, something. Yeah, I want to go to Liberty Bell every day. Okay, so with the upper baby it. thing, how do you, you fold it? Does it actually fit into a vehicle? Then you have to have an SUV. It seems like, like an oh, escalating no, no. top of the carbon use there. You need like a big ass SUV. Like you need a Suburban to like have a baby who is very small. It's ridiculous. It's not No, it adds all these problems. That's dumb. And here's the thing. It's like you start to realize when your child is about one and a half that you don't need any of this stuff, you know? And well, if yeah. you can carry them, that's one thing. Right. What do you mean? Like, are you carrying, are you carrying Frankie around when she's one and a half? Cause that also saves, but if you're not willing to like carry your kid for like 20 minutes, I mean, I don't really remember that whole period <laughs> of life. My life is a blur. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, yeah. After a while, I was like, no more strollers. I'll just carry her. Right. You know, it's yeah. a good workout. Right. right. The stroller thing. I mean, the stroller wars are crazy. So you go to like these, uh, you go to the, you know, like I would go to the, walk down when I lived in Brooklyn to the farmer's market in Grand Army's Plaza. Mm -hmm. And uh, it would be all those strollers just taking up every single aisle of the farmer's market. Yeah, that's rough. Oh and the parents are just loading these things up because they're gigantic. Right. They're shopping carts. Yeah, you can like carry a week's worth of produce oh, wow. in the bottom of the cart. And I'm like, so oh, it's so a complete just, symbol for American consumerism. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's right. an SUV. Wow. They start them young, for sure. It's the SUV of that. Wow. It's the That's SUV. Amazing. And like people convince themselves that they need it, right? Because they think, oh, well, there will be, what about all the times I go to the farmer's market and I need to buy all this stuff? Where am I going to put it? Right. And just like, well, 
bags exist, uh, you know? Just fucking carry the shit. Or like bring one of those shopping carts that all, you know, the, the old Asian cards. ladies pop, uh, right. push around, you know, the wire ones. Well, at that point, I would say you can problem. combine those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> put the baby Just inside put your, the... Put your, your baby, baby in, in the wire <laughs> in the wire shopping cart. With all those are ladies. definitely <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> On top of a pile banana. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, babies are always going to be like most, you know, like, I, I just feel like people invent problems with this sort of stuff. And um, yeah, the stroller thing just drives me crazy. Okay, have we talked enough about baby formula? I thought that was an interesting topic. Yeah, the only other thing I wanted to say was it seems like I, I totally understand the, these critiques. And I think they do make sense on some level. But I, there was little not very much discussion in a lot of those essays, though, about um, monopoly politics. And I just wonder, yeah. like, do we have you know, a trust problem in baby yeah, land. And we probably do, right? I mean, I just, there's not very many companies. So that's it seems yeah, exactly. like another area. That's the criticism. Like it's not just protectionism, but it's also that we're not. Regulating. And I guess the U.S. dairy industry is also. Um, right. Uh, exactly. Whatever cartel part of or government something. Totally. So that's also part of what this yeah. Cato guy was talking about. And I was like, I, I'm yeah. learning new things about our dairy system, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I... All of our agriculture is like really protected, but anyway, so so yeah, that's all. I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the solution is because again, it's like well, you would assume that if everything is made domestically, you're quote unquote safer from disruptions, right? But the the real I don't know issue is that because of uh, the weirdness of supply chains during COVID that they would increase production, then decrease it, then increase and decrease it. So it's still the same underlying problem of companies trying to cut costs and just make just enough to get by and not yeah. wanting to be stuck with a glut, which is understandable, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the I don't know what the solution is other than maybe to like mandate that they have more um, surplus or on hand. But formula goes bad pretty. Quickly, well, the European, the Europe opening it up to certain of those producers, yeah, right, yeah, or Canadian, basically, whoever meets USDA standards, yeah, Canadian, um, Mexican, okay, I don't know. That's enough about baby formula, all right. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about what happened in Buffalo over the weekend. Um, everyone who's listening to this should know, but uh, you know, somebody drove a few hours and decided he wanted to kill a lot of black people and um you know went into a grocery store in a black neighborhood killed 10 people shot 13 um it's a type of terror that is you know hard to grasp in some ways right um and uh certainly you know reminds people of dylan roof and charleston and Mm -hmm. uh a lot of his manifesto has been leaked online. I read it. Like I found a link. Wow. And, you know, it's horrible. It's exactly what you would expect. And, you know, like the thing that's chilling about it is that um, there's been a lot of talk about like, you know, he sort of believed in replacement theory and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But um, it seems like a lot of that stuff was copy and pasted from the Christchurch shooters manifesto. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's not very different. The critics of the people who are saying this are right in that there's not that much difference between what this guy is saying, what Tucker Carlson says every yeah. single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. totally. Um, there's not, there's a big, big section about like 
IQ differences in sub-Saharan Africa and everything else, right? Like that's not that different Holy than shit. what people are saying online every single day in pretty reputable places. It's basically just saying what Charles Murray says every single day, right? That there are even like Andrew Sullivan says, right? Like right. That there are yeah. inheritable IQ differences. And his conclusion from all of this is, you know, just taking it one step further, I think, than, or maybe not even, right, than Tucker Carlson and these people say, and saying, well, this proves that, like, you know, this group of people do not have the IQ or the ability to exist in a Western world with white people. And so my conclusion, I should kill as many of them as possible, right? Um, and there is a calculated way in which it's written, and there's like a way where it doesn't seem like he's crazy, you know, like, uh, it's not like unhinged ranting, um, until the end where he just like spends 40 pages talking about gear. Right. Right. Like, uh, it's really basically the type of stuff that you see online all the time. Right. And so there is this question at this point, I think because we're five days out, right. Like, um, maybe it is an okay time to talk about it, which is like, all right, like how much can you, how much does this type of thing demand that we actually do monitor these ideas, right? Like how much can we attribute to these ideas what happened? Glenn Greenwald wrote a piece uh, about this afterwards in which in true, you know, modern Gre Glenn Greenwald <laughs> style was saying like, oh, can't we just wait and mourn instead of just uh, using this to like attack our political enemies uh -huh. like Tucker Carlson, my friend? You know, and it's just like, Jesus Christ. I mean, like, what are you doing? You know, like, like, can't other people mourn and be mad, you know, without you doing this? Like, how about that? You know, like, um, yeah. like, can't they feel scared without you sort of saying, there's nothing to see here. You're all being unreasonable, right? Like, mm -hmm. of course people feel scared. Like, this guy fucking killed 10 people in like yeah. cold blood. Um, he like live streamed it and he's trying to get, he's trying to like spark a revolution basically right like a white nationalist revolution so yeah um if you say we can't talk about any of those ideas he had because they sound too much like my buddy tucker's ideas like you know that's crazy yeah. anyway so i guess there's another question of like you know like how how should people proceed from this right like we're, we've gotten to this point where we just say wow that was horrible mm -hmm. but nobody knows any step and i actually sympathize with that thought because it's fucking difficult you know it's yeah difficult well, to be like, oh this is exactly radical. the prescription huh? okay I mean, so, Jay, you're yeah, pretty radical in your free speech prescription so i mean right. how do you feel about that because i i'm more like open to different forms of regulating speech and i guess my other question for you guys because i don't know this sphere as much is like i know theoretically that there are republican politicians and the tucker carlson's of, and breitbart's of the world that spew replacement theory but and I don't know at what point we got to a point where that was like an okay thing to do or, or that we yeah. can shrug it off. I guess I just don't understand. I don't know how influential that sort of discourse is. Well, Tucker is very influential, right? Well, the he's influential, theory. but I'm saying like when he says that kind that level of stuff, like I feel do like his I acolytes that. feel like, okay, that's fine. Or are they yeah. just like, oh, that's the stuff he pops off. I feel like I first heard about it with, was Dylan Roof saying replacement theory? Uh, sort of, but the right. Christchurch guy was the real. It was the one, big right? turning point. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but I mean, this idea, it, first of all, there's been versions of it forever. Yeah. It's basically yeah. like a race war from the, the 19th century. The modern one yeah. that Tucker, that exactly. inspires Tucker Carlson is all from, you know, Steve Saylor and V-Dare, right? And it's this idea of uh, Steve Saylor being like former National Review guy who became too racist and he got sort of cast out of like the conservative intelligentsia. Hmm. You know, he writes this blog, I Steve, he writes this for this thing called V-Dare. Um, I only know about all this because I tried to write a profile of Steve Saylor because I think he's the wow. most influential right-wing thinker in America. It's not particularly close, right? So Steve Saylor started saying that, like, started making this argument. It's called the Coalition of the Fringes, right? And the idea okay. is that Democrats have basically understood that they don't, have realized that they don't really represent anyone. And so what they do is that they sort of go to immigrant populations or they go to, uh, you know, POC mm -hmm. people and they say, okay, just vote for us. We're not racist. They're yeah. racist. We're not racist. Right. And that they've been successful in that. And yeah. then they realize that given the demographic changes, the only way that they can stay in power is to try and increase the number of POCs in America as much as possible because they realize that eventually those people will become voters for them, right? Now, this is, you know, crackpot <laughs> theory, right? Like this idea that there's a plot, you know, <laughs> to do this. But this, yeah. this is where it started, right? Like okay. it started with this, this idea. And that he is very good at taking little bits of evidence online and turning them into like what seems like a coherent argument. And so and for that reason, he's very influential, right? Even though he's really sort of cast off and, um, you know, it's weird. He's like a super poster. Like if you look at like the, if you look at the replies to any single um, person, like, uh, I don't know, like even like Jim Surowiecki or Matt Iglesias, like he's mm -hmm. responding to them every single time. And the reason why he's doing it is because wow. they're high profile accounts and, right, you know, yeah. he's like trying to get, he used to comment on basically every single New York times article. Right. Right. Oh my so God. that's how he sort of gets his message out outside of his blog. But these, this, this modern version of the great replacement theory is, I think is, a, is Steve Saylor's brainchild in a lot. When of did it, that, um, when did it hmm. become mainstream or not mainstream, but when did it get a critical yeah. mass? Well, I think through Tucker, right? Like, so last few years, that guy who got yeah. fi fired from Tucker, remember, because he was making all those racist comments. His Can you remind lead us? Writer, his lead writer, Tucker's lead writer, got fired for making all these like racist 20, comments. Anyway, what? Okay. It's like three years ago or something. Okay. Yeah. His intellectual like foregrounding is like in V Dare, wow. right? which is the blog right. that yeah. Steve Saylor does. So, yeah, that's where a lot of this comes from. And, yeah, Tucker's argument is basically, you know, in some ways true, right? Like, I, I remember talking about this when my book came out with somebody, and they're like, the only person who actually talks about how 1965 fundamentally changed the country is oh, Tucker Carlson, you know? <laughs> um, and he's right about that. It did demographically fundamentally change the country, right? Yeah. And his argument is that it made it all into, like, you know, like bad Democrat policies, and all these people are here and they're it's an invasion and they're right. replacing the white voter. Right. Right. Like the white working class person has no um, has no stake in America anymore because their concerns have been taken over by like these either like, you know, like what he calls like low IQ immigrants. Right. right. Which is right. people from Latin America or by like the sort of woke. Upper middle class, upwardly mobile Asian 
right. and African immigrants, right? Which is what Amy, that's where Amy Wax's statements, that's the context of that. Right? Like she's like basically <laughs> saying, like these people are coming over and they're like convinced they're taking away from the white worker. Right. right? Like, so that it's all connected in that sort of way. Yeah. But that's, I think at least in my, from my research, which somewhat considerable about this, like that's the, that's a current intellectual mm-hmm. development of this. Now, okay. if you want to go back further then sure, but like, yeah, you know, like yeah, I'm yeah. more concerned with that. But then, yeah. And I was trying to find this thread. I think I saw a couple of days ago where someone had links to all these kind of mainstream uh, voices in the GOP, including JD Vance and like Steve, right. Steve King, obviously like would say mm-hmm. replacement theory adjacent things. So it's also hard to kind of pin it on a obscure corner of the internet, right? Like it's actually like mm-hmm. a right pretty, pretty much being said by Republican politicians who are winning elections. So I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, the really crazy shit I, I'm kind of with Tammy. I'd be, fine with some sort of regulation i don't know exactly how that happens but the obviously like the bigger issue is goes beyond this um and I, yeah i don't know it almost feels like gun control isn't even like on the table anymore it's just been yeah, like so defeated that the it hasn't even come up really in the last few days yeah like the person making the gun control argument was david from you know there was <laughs> wow. like arguing right and he's the one that he's argued in the past that you know, it's the Im- the immigrants are the problem. You know, it's like uh, yeah, that's why he wants to make it about gun control. I don't know. Let's so. not pathologize him, but people can. I mean, people I'm, can, I'm for gun control. People can, people can draw the conclusions they want. Anyway, <laughs> you know? um, yeah, I think that gun control has basically been so proven to be politically death that nobody can do it. It's really know? bad. Yeah, so it's we're in this in- untenable position. And look, Tammy, you asked, like, you know, because I am, like, pretty radical in my free speech mm-hmm. issues, what I think about it. And, I'm, you know, I don't think it's changed at all, right? Like, I don't think that basically taking Tucker Carlson off the air or making it so that, like, places yeah. that these sort of ideas have nowhere to propagate. I think that the way that you can sort of show that that's not true is the fact that Steve Saylor really is the germ for all of this. And this is a dude. It's not like this is a dude who was, like, posting on gigantic like writing for like big newspapers or anything like that right he did it in pretty dark corners of the internet right and um he did it by commenting on every single new york times article right so So then how do you regulate that right yeah like how, how do you regulate it um and uh i just think that it would require such a broad swift response that um that I think would probably lead to like a ma- in massive backlash instead, right? Like, um, okay. And so I don't know how to. Now, this is not to say that like people should be able to say whatever they want without criticism. Obviously, there should be criticism, you know, and there should be mm-hmm. sort of correcting things that are demonstrably false. But uh, I don't know. I just don't know if getting rid of all of this is gonna is like possible. I mean, this guy's story was that in 2020 during the pandemic he got bored and he started reading about um race now i don't think that anyone should take these types of things very like these manifestos as like the gospel truth right right, right. so i have no idea if that's true or not but you know he was on 4chan and he came across all this sort of stuff and he started thinking about you know why is the black murder rate so high and you know like like this all just seems like a narrative that he's spinning to make himself right. seem reasonable, right. you know? So I don't believe it, but like, you know, 
Um, I, uh, how do you how do you control cheers. that? Uh, one question I had. Maybe we want to. If you this is a separate concern related to this though, but I was reading like the New York Times coverage of it, and there was a quote mm-hmm. from a woman. Marlene Brown, who is 58, who is black, says, we don't want to be protected after the fact. We want to be protected and treated like we matter without it taking a white supremacist shooting up our community. I mean, it sounds like... The policing question. Exactly, yeah. Like, we want police in our neighborhood. And then there's later on quotes from people saying, like, no, we don't trust the police. These police, these institutions don't protect us and so on. But I wonder if this is also going to reignite, um, you know, debates about, like, yeah. the, the utility of police policing um do they protect like kind of the poor black neighborhoods or are they actually like well you know like well when this stuff happens mm-hmm. does that lead to increased support for police or demand for police mm-hmm. right um and this is all happening at a moment where i think like the democrats and biden has kind of doubled down on increased policing um because i think true. they think it's po- yeah. they think it's politically hurting them all this abolition. Well, that's the number one. It that's the number one message from the Democrats right now right, is exactly. refund yeah. the police. Exactly, because they think that's it, that's going to help. Wow. That'll save they'll save them with moderates for the midterm. I assume, right? Exactly. Um, right. I love it because I'm just like, okay, if you, <laughs> you if I didn't it. spend, if I go to a store and I spent no money, you know, and I come in and be like, uh, I'd like a refund, right? They're going to be like, what do you mean you didn't spend any money? You know, <laughs> like there's like you didn't like. There's there's no refund. Right, right, like, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, there's no there's no part where you defunded yourself <laughs> right. to buy for to pay for this thing. I don't know. I you know like Rick Caruso, who is this L.A. mayoral candidate, right? Like he's the rich guy who built the Grove. He's a billionaire, and he's uh, basically oh, spending a ton of money on advertising. And he's looks like he's going to be the next mayor of L.A. He's like a ch- his platform Democrat. is all. We got to clean up this city. This city used to be great. And now it's, you know, I'm going to add 1,500 police officers and I'm going to add this to the police budget. And, um, you know, one of the things about this refund the police thing, as both of you, I think, know, is that like people in these cities do not want to become police officers. So like this idea that like we're going to add police officers, you can't wave a wand and increase the police force, right? You need people who want to become cops, like you need an actual labor force. Yeah. And so like here in Oakland, I think I've talked about it is, uh, you know, like one of the things that they did was they they offered a 50,000 signing bonus, dollar for signing bonus for anybody who would become an Oakland police officer. It, it, that didn't work, you know? And so like- wow. Like you just, how are you going to increase police presence when nobody wants to be a police officer? Right. And so like, I don't know that like we're in a weird place where like saying we're going to add police officer, we're going to refund the police. Right. Like, and first of all, like you can talk about it morally. Right. But secondly, like functionally, like yeah. you can put as much money as you want. Like you are not going to increase the LAPD by that much because you're not going to find enough people who want to join the LAPD. Unless you start importing in yahoos from all around the country. That's what I was thinking. Right. Which is like the real problem, right? You know, like, um, so in Oakland, like what's going to happen? The only people who are going to take the $50,000 to be an OPD are like people who are like from Fresno. Not to say anything bad about Fresno, but people are going to come from all over the place to do this thing. They're not people who are going to be like, you know, like, because, you know, they have to sort of give lip service to like community policing and stuff like mm-hmm. there, like you're importing people in like right. what is yeah. right, right, right. how are you gonna, how are you gonna <laughs> do both these things at once right so yeah i don't know anyway yeah. i don't even remember how do we even start talking about that oh the police part of Andy's, it Tammy, what do you yeah. think 
Yeah, no, I was seeing the same thing you were, Andy, and it definitely raised alarms for me. I mean, it's also what you can't obviously say anything to people in the community who are reacting in a particular way and like we're not there and, you know, we don't know the dynamics. Yeah. But I, it's also striking to me that a retired cop, I think, was the security guard on duty. Oh, he was? Um, okay. who, who was among the victims. And, you know, it's not as though a police presence in a grocery store doesn't prevent this sort of thing from occurring. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like a targeted response, but I understand the, you know, the general feeling. There of it, is, and it seems, I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of these comments out there that are like, you know, if the shooter were black, he would not have survived, but the shooter is white. So they treated him really well. Uh, I guess that happened a lot of the times when these attacks happened, the sort of, because he was white, he was treated so well. Yeah. I think in general, though, what you, when you read these comments, the underlying complaint isn't so much we want more police. It's more like we're being treated differently. We're being Definitely. treated worse yeah. than, you know, I guess right. East Side of Buffalo is the I poor black right. part of town and West Side is mm-hmm. very white and richer or middle class. Um, and so it isn't so much, I think, absolute figures of police. I think it's more about like re- relative sure. relational, relative treatment. Um, and you could read that optimistically as like a, a call for like, you know, better like redistribution of resources and opportunities and all that stuff. And no one is no one is just looking for the magic solution of police. Um, I don't know. Like, obviously I think what caused all this is we could speculate for our deeper social, you know, things that are happening that, that would put Mm -hmm. this, this person in position to imbibe this stuff, to take out a gun and all that. But like, until we actually like fix all that stuff, I do. It's it's like, I'm at a loss to suggest what else to do other than like, I don't know, take away his gun, you know, make it, make it harder for him to get a gun. Um, Uh, this will just keep happening like we're in a period of um i don't even know how to describe it right it's just endless terror um and i mean it would be i do kind of feel like there isn't a lot of push but i don't i don't know i don't know if there's like a unified response to replacement theory if that makes sense people are just like well that's crazy but i was wondering about that too because i i was struck by what jay was describing where he was saying this steve sailor guy there was a point of no return in the conservative intellectual environment where they were like, okay, now you can't work at the National Review. Right, but that like, was, there was a boundary. That was and in that the ba- 80s. Right, okay. so, but now there's yeah. no boundary? Like, there's well, no... Well, like Tucker Carlson's guy, like, right. You're saying, like, yeah. there is... Okay. The, the, there's but... an internal limit, but... Right, well, National Review would not let this... Would not let Steve Saylor back in right now, you know, I would just say. But, like, the point is that the internet gave him this big forum, Right. To sort of spread these ideas. That's the thing. I mean, I, right. I guess that's just my point, which like it feels like because of the way our information is structured, there aren't these points of no return anymore. Yeah. Like there aren't mm-hmm. clubs from which you can be ejected and like you then really truly become a fringe yeah, figure. Right. Because then you're, as a fringe figure, you're actually more influential. Right. <laughs> it, it was interesting how both of Steve Saylor's big ideas are were this guy's manifesto, you know. Yeah, because um, one is replacement theory, and the other one is um, is a uh, human what he calls human biodiversity, which you can guess what that is. My you know, Lord! That, oh, right, right. And uh, his example is always that you know why is it that the top ten sprinters in the Olympics at the hundred meter dash oh are always from West African lineage, yeah, right? right? Um, like obviously humans are different, so why can't we say that you know their intelligence is different, right? yeah. like biologically? Um, and that's was the first half of this guy's manifesto. Yeah, you know, um, it does feel like just saying like, "Well, race is a construction," is like not a very forceful 
response for a lot of these people. They don't want to. I I mean, I guess I have two kind of other thoughts. One is like, well, isn't replacement theory mostly about immigrants? Why is the target here like very clearly like American born, like multiple generation black Americans? Well, he just said, yeah, we should kill the immigrants too, but I only have so much time and I can only do one thing. So <laughs> okay. I'm going to do this. But secondly, I, I get, and this is like the historian in me is to say like, well, if this is all about increased immigration since the sixties and seventies, what was the tipping point? Like, why didn't this happen in the eighties? Why didn't this happen in the nineties? Why does it seem like there's been a real upsurge? It did this? happen in the nineties. Like a nativist backlash to increase immigration was like the story of the nineties. Right. Like, I mean, do we have these shootings though, to the same degree? Um, maybe not shootings, but like, yeah, or like you know, the spread of replacement theory, nativist backlash in the nineties. Yeah. yeah. So, do you feel do you feel like it's kind of a linear story, just like more and more? I don't know if it's worse now than it was in the nineties. Um, I think it was really, really bad in the nineties. Uh, you know, in terms of these well, types of moments of violence, right? Like, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, like, it's has interesting there been because like a, the only. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say it's interesting because the only mass legalization program we've ever had was Reagan's. And so that, you know, that post kind of 65 wave of like, and then the growth of the undocumented population and then their ability to stay here and to become part of the United States happened under a Republican. And since then, we haven't really had much of a functional immigration reform program. Immigration is down a lot right now. I mean, so it doesn't correspond to reality, the stuff. It's it's just seems like a a theory that has persisted and has sort of moments where it rises to the surface more. And I'm sure certain conditions around the pandemic and stuff have, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. 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 I don't even yeah know it's hard to map it. this stuff directly, but it does yeah. seem like, you know, there's this, kind, you could, you could talk about this from the sort of intellectual side, like where do these ideas come from? Where do they yeah. circulate? The kind of thing that Jay was talking about. And then it doesn't map one-to-one, but it does seem to track with like these broader trends that people right. are reacting to. Right. I also think in the '90s, this idea of mass shootings were not as common. You know. Yeah. Like Columbine was kind of a pre-Columbine. Yeah. yeah. I think that was probably part of it too. Um, all right. Well, the last thing we should talk about today is, you know, Tammy, you want to talk about uh, what's happening in the Philippines, right? Um, yeah. I just wanted a, to to flag this it. This is yeah, Tammy's internationalist. <laughs> corner <laughs> Tammy's sad news corner yeah. um yeah I mean I think you guys have been paying attention to it too but you know recently there was a presidential election in the Philippines and it's it was somewhat remarkable because um Bongbong Marcos who's the son of Fernan Marcos uh won president and in the Philippines the president and vice president are elected separately and the VP elect is Sarah Duterte who's uh right, Duterte's right daughter. And so, um, yeah, just this problem of dynastic rule in the Philippines and kind of circulating dictators and of corrupt officials, you know, seems to be continuing, but in a way that is like so remarkable, so outlandish. And um, I think it's a lot of Filipino Americans, people in the diaspora are paying attention. Obviously, people in the Philippines are going to suffer a lot in this period. Um, And, you know, I was interested because there is the, the opposition candidate who had been the VP under Duterte, and I think suffered quite a lot being uh, that person because she's somewhat progressive. Um, this woman, uh, Lina Roberto, there was a lot of hope that she could potentially defeat this. Yeah. Um, but it just seems like the Philippines is suffering actually from a lot of the stuff we were just discussing, like this feeling of this like 
I don't know, some sort of like beleaguered underclass under conditions of like advanced capitalism and neoliberalism, yeah. a huge growth of inequality in the society, the yeah. feeling that people coming out of the pandemic don't have economic options. And and so so a real sort of just shift towards this kind of new Duterte era where yeah. it feels OK to continue electing these right wing um, leaders. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't have any specific you know expertise in the Philippines, but it's uh, yeah. something that just seemed really awful. It also seemed, I think, to Koreans probably like a little bit of an echo of the election of Pakune, where you're like, right. oh, you have your historic dictator during the developmental era, their child's coming back in this kind right. of wing, you know, circulation. And so um, it's this is mostly just like a note of solidarity to people who are very worried about it and feel personally connected yeah. to it. And and I don't know if you guys have additional thoughts on kind of what it means. I, I also understand, Andy, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, that um, the China question is kind of mixed up into this because the Dutertes and the Marcoses, they've sort of always been in this position of of kind of leveraging their in-betweenness. Like yeah. they want to be the darlings of the U.S. when that is beneficial right. to them, right, but right, they right. also have been expressing a lot of, you know, so, like sort of a uh, common feeling with Putin and Xi Jinping. Right. So I think that was part of the election as well. Yeah. So the stuff I was reading was oh, like a few thoughts. The first thing was like most of the coverage I was reading from like basically like British and US papers was very much focused mm-hmm. on this question of disinformation, which, you know, we're going to get into like, yeah. that... and it probably it does seem like it's like legitimately an issue. <laughs> like, uh, like, sure. like people really don't know what's going on from like their WeChat social media, but it also, the bigger, more charitable reading is that it's about kind of historical amnesia that, the people who were voting for Marcos Jr. are too young to remember totally. um, basically anything before, you know, the 80s, obviously, which is when Marcos Sr. was ousted. And, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's obviously these articles are kind of selective in who they quote, but you know, a lot of older people were saying, like, this is horrible. I remember how bad Marcos Sr. was, but the young generation doesn't care, which makes mm-hmm. me, I mean, that's one question I kind of had for you when Pak pa- Kunye was elected was the, the similar feeling like the older people were like oh no not again but the younger people were like like what's wrong with the park family like they're great like because it seems like in a lot of the reporting in the philippines they were recasting the marcos era the 60s to the 80s as this great era of economic growth and yeah things were really good and ignoring or denying right the thousands of people who were tortured and captured during that mm-hmm. same period. So I guess it's a question about like, well, who gets to own the history of the country? Yeah. Um, and right. Also like, you know, some people's families did prosper under these conditions. Right. right? That's the thing. Yeah. I think so like for sure. I can have, you know, you see, I saw, I met some of her supporters, you know, like people who had, yeah. Um, and like, they're just like, we want a stable country. Right. You know, they're very socially conservative and they're afraid of, uh, you know, things like gay people in Korea, women. Right. right? And they want like economic growth and a repressive social system. Yeah. Because their families did very well under that, you know, and, um, you know, yeah, a lot of older is, people really loved Pakune. It was kind of the right, inverse of really. what you were talking about. And yeah. I think that tension must exist in the Philippines too, where you have an older generation. Some of them right. were tortured under that regime, you know, and right. then some of them feel a lot of nostalgia for that time. And they, in, in Pakune's case, they actually felt a lot of personal sympathy for her because they see her as the kind of like orphaned daughter of the state. Right. So it's a mess. Like Korea actually <laughs> under Pak, pa- like Chung Hee, like did experience 
an incredible growth and they went from right. a third to first yeah. world country. Excellent. The Philippines is much more ambivalent. I was like the officially the economy did grow, but it didn't grow. And it was obvious as much as the other Asian countries, and it was also unequal, obviously. So much more kleptocratic, I think. Then and then that was the Four Tigers era, exactly. And Philippines was Mm -hmm. trying to become a Four Tigers, but the other issue was they borrowed so much. This goes back to the U.S. question, right? They were very much like the Latin America of Asia. They borrowed so much from the IMF and the United States that in the '80s, with like the Volcker shocks and the debt coming, uh, you know, the people knocking on the door for the debt, like the IMF and the World Bank or whatever. They went into serious debt. This led to austerity, and this makes a lot of the inequality in the Philippines even worse. So, unlike the four tigers who are able to kind of like lift off through all their economic policies, the Philippines kind mm-hmm. of winds up in debt and has been kind of in stasis. I think economically for a while, even though it's trying to like reposition itself, right? As as they always are. Right. But but that that theme of we'll accept we'll we will accept authoritarianism in exchange for economic growth, that's pretty common, right? All throughout Asia yeah. and Asian history. Right. Also I think yeah. that like people you know, there's this like common thing that happens. I'm not saying it's happening here, but like, you know, like people tend to take like, oh well how could the this these people like this person? But the concept the right. portrayal of the person that you have is from America from the Western view of it. And a lot of times it could be like somewhat propagandistic, but it's certainly hostile, you know? And so like the, like, this is not to say that these dictators are good. I'm just saying that like on the opposite end, these people are taking in propagandistic stuff saying this guy's great, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like the, I, I think that sometimes there's too much of an emphasis placed on, well, all the people will hate this person. Right. It was like, well, no, Pakenham was like elected. Yeah. Like huge support. Right. And it seems like in yeah. the Philippines. The question is why, right? That so yeah, many people exactly. are voting for right. the Dutertes and the Marcoses of the world. Right, right, right. Yeah, like the reporting was saying, on the one hand, they thought there was a lot of crazy stuff happening at the polls. On the other hand, mm-hmm. um, the, the I forget, the opposition, they were like, but we also kind of internally know that Marcos has won the election. Yeah. Like, like the majority right. supported right. him. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, the vote count is not close. Yeah, know? exactly. And so. so yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, I thought the analogy you were going to say was like the re- recent Korean election, right? Which is where you said like they kind of, we feel like the Koreans oh. kind of went back. Oh, yeah. But that was like, that one I think is almost impossible to connect, contest in any sort no, of No, no. I'm just saying like the pendulum has swung back in from terms of like liberal, oh, yeah. liberal back to yeah. conservative policy. I think yes. I was just, uh, to me, I think just the fact that it's literally their sons and daughters right. yeah. just right. it feels much more of that time. But you're right. I mean, I guess that part, that time also to me is more analogous because this is going from Duterte to Marcos Duterte. Mm-hmm, and that exactly. time we it's were going from Inyongbak to Pakune. So that was yeah. more, it was the second conservative term in that period. Right. So right. it actually is quite analogous. The recent oh, no. Korean election, I mean, he is also has certain kind of authoritarian tendencies, but it's sort of less ostentatious. Yeah. And also he's like, yeah. it seems like it's more like pure reactionary, right? Like he's like a... Seems like a He's Marcus. like a re- oh the no 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 the Korean yeah. one um, where he is a response to sort of modern right Korea and not yeah. so much a throwback to past authoritarianism right like he's sort of everything's out of control <laughs> he's his own new yeah. man of authoritarian yeah. <laughs> it's hard to uh, yeah criticize these Ugh. Asian uh, nepotistic elections when we also did two bushes and. Of you know, course. Almost yeah. the two oh, yeah. and, well, it's We're true. not saying like, hey, you know, 
Why yeah. don't they just do it like us? <laughs> <laughs> and There's no nepotism problems trusts. in America at all. We don't have any. We don't have any dynasties. We're like, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I can't okay. wait for uh, you know. I mean, what's Kamala's daughter's name? Who's on always on Instagram, hanging out with media people? I forgot her name. I don't know. Oh God, yeah. Her stepdaughter. I can see her face. I don't know. We can't wait for her to run for president. So, um, okay, I think we're good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Cammy. Go see Prague. Go figure out what the dinner regular like. What is the food of Prague? (laughs) Besides, you're saying it's a pork knuckle. Pork knuckle sausage. Oh, that sounds pretty good, honestly. I think Um, meat eaters are happy here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I've started to. I'm. I'm starting to wean myself off eating meat. Oh, good tofu. Yeah, I'm too fat right now. I'm like, gonna... this is the fattest I've ever <laughs> been in my life. I just keep gaining weight, and I was like, I can't just like keep old. this going until I'm it's 50 stress. and I'm like 250 pounds. Yeah, and I'm like one of those dads who's just like, yeah, you know, like back in my day, I used to do X, Y, and Z, but now I can't move. I can't do it. You know, so I, I've, I've yeah, also like, I don't know. Get some tofu. Meat is bad. It's good yeah. to be healthy. Right. Yeah, it's good for the um, Okay, well, thank you for All listening right, guys, to our to show. You. We do this every week. Uh, we'll do it next week. We'll do it the week after. And then, who knows? You know? Um, if you want to support the show, Substack, goodbye.substack.com. If you would like to email us, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. And you can reach out to us on Twitter at TTSGPod. We don't really tweet that much. Discord is the way to go. To get in our Discord, you can sign up for the show. We'll send you a link and come in. Oh, we didn't talk about everything everywhere all at once. Oh, my gosh. Okay, very quickly, Tammy, what was your problem with this film? Which I Wait, are you going to spoil life? it? I haven't seen it. Okay, we'll, oh, yeah. we'll talk about it later after Andy's When Andy it. Okay, I, can, I can try to watch this. <laughs> okay, for those. I told the people in the Discord that we were going to talk about it today, and they're like, did, did you hate it? And I was like, no, but, but one of us did, <laughs> and you'll figure it out tomorrow. <laughs> well, we, we just spoiled it because I said I hadn't seen it. But. Yeah, yeah, so the spoiling is that Tammy didn't like it, which I find crazy, but we can talk about that later because I thought the movie was great. Okay, All right, we'll um, talk about it until next week. Bye. All right.